Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. Pragmatic is sponsored by LifeX. Visit LifeX, spelled L-I-F-X, dot co slash pragmatic for more information and to take advantage of a special discount off their amazing LED smart bulbs exclusively for Pragmatic listeners. I'm your host, John Chigi, and I'm joined today by my guest host, Jason Snell. How are you, Jason? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, I've been following your work for quite some time, so it's sort of a bit surreal um, to be talking to you. But uh, I wanted to get you on specifically to talk about one thing. And it's it's interesting, I find, in engineering, one of the things that I never thought when I was younger was just how much writing that would be involved. Uh, so much, so much documentation and so much writing. And one of the things I've struggled with is bridging that gap from starting out with I can put words on a page to you know what are the right words to put on a page. It sounds simplistic, but it's really a lot harder than people think. So, in terms of your background, um, if I remember correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, you went to University of uh, California, San Diego, and worked at the UCSD Guardian, and that was starting at about 1988. Is that is that correct? Yeah. It sounds like you've been reading my Wikipedia page. It's quite possible, yes. <laughs> and you have a Wikipedia page too. Congratulations, yeah. I think. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Somebody <laughs> needs to update it. It's it's kind of it's getting kind of old. It's and get- I'm not allowed to update it myself. Uh, you can't edit, you can't edit your own Wikipedia page. I learned that lesson the hard way. Yeah, I'm hearing John Syracuse in the back of my head right now complaining <laughs> yeah. about that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I, I got to I got to witness uh, all sorts of Wikipedia wars once somebody made a page for me. I yes, I went to UC San Diego um, and was the editor of the school paper there, and then uh, left there. Went to um, when I graduated, I went to graduate school in Berkeley at the at, at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Met an editor for Mac User Magazine back in the day, and I was always interested in media and writing and things like that as well as technology and so that was a perfect fit and I was actually a Mac user reader and so I got an internship and then um, they liked me so they hired me and I have been doing this ever since so it's been uh, in January it was it was my basically 20th anniversary of being paid full-time to be a technology journalism guy wow okay cool well definitely uh Definitely a fair amount of experience there, and I don't mean that in a way to, to make you feel old or anything. I'm <laughs> sorry, uh, but no. And and well, I'm I've been doing engineering, not co- coming close to twenty years now, but um, it's the sort of thing that in engineering you're paid to be an engineer. You're not paid necessarily. You're not really paid to be a writer. But what you inevitably learn is you end up doing a heck of a lot of writing, and it's a it's a sl- there's a lo- a, enough different subtle drivers in that technical writing compared to the sorts of writing that you do. But it's, I think it's going to be an interesting exercise to look at, compare and contrast and see ways that people can improve. So, um, I guess everyone in, in, their, in their life that has gone through some form of formal schooling knows how to read and write. And I guess that's sort of a broad statement and maybe that's a first world kind of statement, but I'm expecting the majority of people listening to this uh, have been through school and can read and write. Uh, if not all, then the vast majority of. And I guess my issue is that a lot of people seem to have this concept that, hey, I can put words on a page, therefore, 
I'm a writer, you know, and I can start a blog, start a website, write a book, be a journalist, and that if you just keep doing that, that success will just happen to them. And I think that that's, well, perhaps somewhat simplistic. I think that it's a matter of understanding the different styles of writing. And I guess my uh, my, my background is that I don't think about this enough, and maybe that's part of my problem when it comes to writing stuff for my site, Tech Distortion, is is getting my head in the right space, clicking out of engineer mode, as it were. But I think it might be interesting just to talk about the, the different styles of writing just quickly. And um, so first of all, uh, there's expository writing and descriptive writing, persuasive writing and narrative. And when you're writing for uh, a fa- factual information about a subject, you almost, I think almost exclusively sort of tend to live in expository writing. And because you're just describing the detail about a subject, if you're reviewing a product or if you're uh, if you have a commentary on, on on an event that's happened, whereas if you go into the descriptive, you end up using lots and lots of adjectives and putting lots of detail around events, places, characters, those sorts of things. But there's sorts of there tends to be sometimes there could be a little bit of a blend of descriptive in with the expository, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, persuasive Definitely. is. The opinion piece. It's the I'm the editor of of the magazine, and I'm going to write. I guess I guess from your point of view, that's something that you would probably do um, more so than I would. Um, but narrative is pretty much out, I think, because you know, as the author putting themselves in position of a character or narrating a story, that has no real place in what what either of us do. I don't know. I I could argue that I use all of those techniques. Um, okay. Uh, it it. Not to, not to upset the the four slots of different kinds of writing, but you could sure. you could argue you could argue. I mean, narrative a little bit less so, but um, I, a lot of the stuff. So let's say I'm writing a review of a new iPhone. Part of that is going to be me describing what the new iPhone looks like and what the ports are and how does it feel and you know how heavy does it feel and how does it feel when you hold it and all of those things. There's going to be some persuasion because I'm going to have an opinion about what's good and bad about it. There is going to be uh, some some drier sort of like uh, recitation of, of information about it. And potentially there is going to be the story uh, the storytelling aspect of it, which is how do you make this piece that you're writing more interesting? And, you know, most, not a lot of reviews or not a lot of stories are like that, but that does happen from time to time where the act of using the product becomes part of the story as well. And you're sort of telling your your story as, as a way to uh, explain some aspect of the, of the device, like uh, maybe not an iPhone for a, an example, but maybe something like a GPS app where you tell the story about getting lost in your car mm-hmm. um, as a part of uh, explaining why you would use it or explaining why the app isn't very good because you, yeah. if you got lost while you were using it. So I'd say, I'd say those are all tools uh, that, uh, that um, you know, w- when, you're, when you're being taught how to write, you're very much sort of told uh, you, you write a persuasive essay. Or or write a write a descriptive piece. Or, Absolutely, yeah. and uh, in and that's those are all good muscles to to tone and and train on. But in the end, um, I do think that you end up a lot of times using all of those techniques in different places. And in I found that even writing about tech that that you, you do do that. I mean, it's not. There was a time I think when writing about this stuff was considered more. 
uh, straightforward. Even I, I felt it even a little bit when I started in in the '90s that this idea that you know a review is going to be this perfect yeah. pristine thing that has no personal bias and it's just you're just sort of detailing the facts and then you walk away and these days that you know it's just not yeah. that's just not how it's done yeah and, and i'm glad you brought that up because i did actually want to have a point to talk about that because if my recollection and um you know i guess i'm i'm, I'm getting on so in years but hey when i was younger and i was reading this sort of stuff back in the uh, the well the early 90s, late 80s, and I started to get more of an interest in that and started buying, uh, you know, magazines and so on about, about technology and, oh, wow, look at these portable computers that weigh, you know, 10, 15 kilograms or something crazy. Um, <clears throat> you know, when I was reading that, so it was all very factual, very much written a lot like uh, you would read a newspaper, uh, you know, as opposed, not when I say I read a newspaper, I mean, not, not an opinion article, but a factual, right. yeah, as you say, yeah, there's, there's no... Yeah, it's right. This is this are, these are the hard facts, and you know we're going to get these facts into you, and that's it. Whereas now, whereas in the the last probably ten to fifteen years, perhaps more so the last ten, and maybe I'm wondering if this is an influence of of blogging platforms and and whether or not people feel that that there's more of a connection with your reader if you are less factual and add a little bit more descriptive and a bit more persuasive into the into the pieces you write. What do you think? Yeah, um, it's uh, so an old boss of mine, Rick LePage, used to point out, and and I, I think he he had worked at Mac Week, and I and then he worked uh, in at MacWorld and was my boss for several years, and he would always talk about um, how reviews are the point of view of the person who writes them, and they're all personal, and they are all subjective, and that you can use objective evidence but that in the end a review is one person's opinion and that was counter i mean i think when he started making those arguments before i worked with him it was probably quite uh iconoclastic to do that 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 you were very much saying going up against this uh feeling that everything is very scientific and there's no personal opinion and when we tell you what the best hard drive is that's because it's the best hard drive and you know the fact is a lot of this stuff it really is like writing a movie review more than a lab report and and i always i you know what rick said really really struck me that um not only does that make it entertaining to read, and one of the reasons you write the way you know you need to write is to make people want to read it, but also you know getting across your perspective is useful because people understand where you're coming from, and if they trust you and they understand um, that you know about this stuff, they're going to give your opinions weight. Whereas if you're just sort of coming across as a robot, they don't really know where you're coming from, just sort of like from on high. But there's no authority there except like the brand name. The, the PC Magazine said this and therefore you should believe it which is you know definitely what all of the computer magazines were like in the 80s and early 90s uh but i I like that too because that takes a little bit of the pressure off of you you can you can be who you are and explain um why you think this it also honestly one this is one of my reviewer pet peeves is it also makes you uh as a reviewer start to think about what your own biases are and and note them which i think makes the review better because i think one um this is and i'm not thinking of anybody in particular there are a lot of people who do this but one of the things that i uh, that bothers me about a lot of reviews in general not just tech reviews but book reviews or record reviews or whatever is is that people 
um, are very focused on their opinion. And I know this sounds crazy, but it's like they they come from a background and they are concerned about the way they would use this product, let's say, in their life. And if it doesn't fit with them, then it's bad. Yeah. And and that's terrible because, you know, you do need to put yourself, if you're a good writer, a good product reviewer, you need to put yourself in an, in a, understand your place and that, that there are other people who have different um, different lives and different needs and think about using your knowledge as a reviewer think about those people and who might like this why was this product created is it something that other people could use and if you can't do that at the very least say look this isn't for me uh, which is different than saying this is bad and and yeah. so that that was just that was a lesson that I that I learned I'm not sure if I'm answering your question or not oh, but no, that, this fine. is this is a this is a lesson that I learned that I really have taken to heart and I honestly I think the way that the, the writing on the web these days about technology and and I think writing in general these days it everybody seems to have come around to that to some degree it is it is about a personal thing some people get really focused on them and they they miss that larger perspective uh, which yes. I try to always hold hold in I I might, you know, when I say I don't like something, I'll say, look, I have an 11 inch MacBook Air. Um, this doesn't make sense for me, but I maybe this is why they did it. And maybe if you have a bigger screen, then then it, it would be fine. But I, so I can criticize something, but also kind of recognize that it's coming from a specific place, which is which is me and the way that I use this product and it's a little mm-hmm. like if you if you if you read a, a an album review of a new a new album that just gets that just got released and it's from somebody who's hated all of the pre- the previous output of that per that artist yeah. um and you're a fan of that artist that review tells you nothing because they you know uh, what you want is a review from the perspective of somebody who is where you are yeah, and that's, that's always right. you know and so so when you lose perspective like that i think you're not doing anybody any favors so i, I you know, yeah. I think I think you're, that, that's, you're writing a yeah. review for your for yourself and not for anyone else. Right. And what's point. the? I mean, that's yeah. fun, I guess. But what's the point if you're trying to? If the purpose of writing is to communicate with other people and be persuasive, yeah. um, yeah. laying your cards on the table, which people used to be afraid of, of what are your biases? Where do you come from? Why are you writing this? But it, it actually is a strength because then people mm-hmm. understand, and then they can they can choose to agree or disagree. But they at least they know where you know where you're coming from and. Uh, yeah, it didn't used. To, it's funny. It didn't used to be that way. There very much was this strain of uh, it needs to come from on high. You've got all the lab data. Uh, MacWorld and I think others, but I saw it at MacWorld when I started. Actually, I had a spreadsheet that you were supposed to fill out. So you do your opinions and then you put them in a spreadsheet and with numbers. You'd numberify them and it would, uh, and along with lab data, and it would spit out a rating. And that was the rating. And you you couldn't like say this feels like a three and a half out of five. It would say no. This is four or this is at one point it was like this is 3.6 and okay. it was all it was all fake and stupid because <laughs> it was trying to um trying to make this thing completely robotic and 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 ob- quote unquote objective and all it was doing was using the biases of the spreadsheet and whoever had made the spreadsheet and not the person who actually used the product which wow. seemed like a yeah, I didn't. Well, as soon yeah. as I had the ability to throw that spreadsheet away, I did. <laughs> well done, excellent, cool. Well, that's something, something, something I, I, I didn't know. That's for sure. I mean, fascinating. Some of the things you said, I just want to quickly follow up on. And I guess one of the problems that I've, I sort of see with, um, well, not problems, but part of the evolution of what we've seen with this, uh, this change of tone and, and perspective of the author when we, when, when, when we do a review. 
It has to do with uh, the original sort of the journalistic style or the new style of reporting whereby everything is sort of explicit, precise. You sort of, um, you kind of, um, you, you show a balanced perspective and, or you rather you try to show, if you're, if you're good at it, you show a balanced perspective and, you know, you take that opinion out of it. And as, as you sort of move away towards that, it's, it's uh, what, just to paraphrase, it's okay to add a little bit of your personal opinion, so long as you temper that with some with some balance and say, well, here's my use case. Um, this is why it matters to me. Mm-hmm. But in terms of my criticisms, how I'm going to criticize, you know, this product, service, whatever it might be. Well, I'm going to I'm going to back that up with here are my reasons why. Oh, and by the way, here's also my personal bias, and and then that way, I guess, as you say, all the cards are on the table, and so the reader can then make a more informed decision. And I think that that balance is critical. And I completely agree, and, and I think that that's that's something that is that is sorely lacking in a vast majority of um, well, I, I don't want to say bloggers because it sounds almost dismissive because it's not. It's just that there are people at different stages when they're developing their own online writing, and I, I guess one of the things that I, I always enjoy about reading your reviews is that yeah, you know, all of that is already there. It's like, yeah, so you've reached that point after all this, all these years of of, of refinement and. Then you could read someone who's been writing on the web for a year or two and you read it and it's like, okay, I can't quite put my finger on what it is. But part of why I wanted to get you on and talk about this is, well, for my own benefit as well, I guess, to try and get my head around and because I, I, can, I can't put my finger on it, but I'm starting to be able to put my finger on it now, exactly what's wrong with some reviews. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So I guess one of the, the next thing I want to talk about is um, jargon and detail. And it's one of the yeah, I know. It's one of those things that I've struggled with and I know a lot of people struggle with. And from an engineering point of view, I struggle with that as well because different documents are for different audiences and knowing your audience is extremely difficult. Oh yeah. So um writing for a, a magazine like Macworld, is it fair to still call it a magazine? I mean, I know it's a magazine physically, but there's so much online presence. I, I yeah, I don't even think of it that way anymore. I mean, we really no. all write for the website, and then it, some of it gets in a magazine that some people see. But yeah, yeah. So for a publication, perhaps is the best way of putting it. Then okay, yeah. Well, I mean, what what would how how do you refer to it internally? Um, the the web uh, thing. I'm sure it's something the, the site. We 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 would just say the site or or, or MacWorld okay. and not. But you know, we, I think we're all basically focused on the site. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but you're right enough. about so levels what, levels of yeah. levels. Who are who are you trying to reach? Is always the big question when you're writing anything, right? Is who is this for? Yes, mm, absolutely. So when you're writing for such a diverse audience, because you you're going to have people that have got uh, a very small amount of experience that have heard of MacWorld or have picked up something off the shelves or have wandered across the website after doing a Google search. And they see, you know, Jason Snell's review of, you know, the iPhone 5 or what, 5S or whatever it is, uh, or Yosemite more, more most recently. Uh, and they're going to have a very different level of someone of technical knowledge versus someone who's been following Apple for the last five years or 10 years. You know, how do you balance and take control of the depth of that, of that detail when you're writing? You know, you 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 have to you have to know who you're writing for. I mean, you do, and and you you can't just say, 
um, well, this could be anybody on the internet. I mean, because it could be, it could always be anybody. You have to say, what's my target audience? Who am I, who am I trying to reach here? And, and ideally you, you internalize that eventually. And you realize, again, you're not going to hit everybody and people are going to have, like, I've had feedback. Um, I think I even wrote in one of my like 7,000 word long iPhone reviews at one point, I, I made the point that, um, there's going to be a group of people who read this article who wishes it was 15,000 words and another group who thinks it's 4,000 words too long. Yeah. And and you just have to make a decision. And, and when I write um, an OS ten review, it's a third of the length of John Syracuse's OS ten review. And that's not because I couldn't write 20,000 words about OS ten because I most certainly could. I'm not yeah. saying it would be better than John's, but I certainly could could match him on volume if I really tried. Um, but it's not what my site is for. And if I was writing for, uh, you know, for CNN or Yahoo or the San Francisco Chronicle or the New York times, I would probably write 600 words or write 800 words about it and have to stop because it's a different audience. And so that, that always, you, you internalize it. So for Macworld, I've got my own sort of map about what, you know, who these people are, which is that they, they are excited about Apple stuff and they want to know, um, and they're, they're technical enough that they have come to this website to find more detail than they're going to get in a, in a newspaper or something like that. But they're also not, you know, I'm not searching at the level of Ars Technica where I, I'm speaking to developers and people who understand detail, incredible, and want to get down into that level of like detail of what's happening behind the scenes at a at a super nerdy level. I, I, I'm trying to be a, a level up from that. And that's just the level that I've I've set. And you're not going to be able to please everybody, but you try to imagine that. And that is always the case is you're trying to figure out who that audience is because it's very, it's it's almost impossible to write um, anything if you don't have some idea of who you're speaking to. And that can be, you know, it's a bell curve, right? So you're sort of imagining the peak of the bell curve and you're, and, and the, the, the range around it. Like, and, and I don't want to say that this, like, it's totally, uh, like I sit down and I go, okay, what, what demographics am I targeting today? Because that's yeah. not what I'm doing, but I am thinking, who am I writing this for? And, 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 you know, so like when I'm writing about OS 10 Yosemite, that is a story for Macworld. It is for people who are probably using Mavericks, uh, yeah. and certainly are aware of the, the march of OS 10 over the years. I'm not writing that story for somebody who is using windows and thinking about switching to the Mac. Cause that's just not what my story is about. Those people are out there and they might even find that story on the internet. And if I think that there is a market for that kind of story, I will say to the editors at Macworld, we, maybe we should do a story about, you know, for switchers thinking about going to Yosemite, but that is a different story and that's not the story I'm writing. So you've got to have that in mind, even if it's just a default and, mm-hmm. and that can make all the difference. Andy and Otko talks about this a lot. He and I are, are, are in sync about a lot of this review stuff, the incredible importance of knowing who your audience is and laying all your cards on the table about your own biases and where you're coming from and trying to, to reach a broader you know, a broader audience and trying to understand why other people might want or not want a particular product and try trying to broaden it out from there. Because my audience is also not me, right? We talked about that earlier. It has to be this broader audience. And I read John Syracuse's review of OS 10. I'm, I'm happy to go down that deep, but that's Mm. not my, that's not my audience. So, um, that's, that's part of the trick too, is picturing that person who isn't you and trying to reach them and, and while also channeling your own experiences and biases and things like that. It's, you know, when I think about it like that, it's a little bit like, um, 
like breathing or riding a bike mm. where it's something you do all the time and you don't think about or like tying your shoes if you try to break down how you tie your shoes into little bits it starts to fall apart because you realize you've just sort of internalized it as a block and yeah. I, I tie my shoes and then mm-hmm. you start to pick it apart and it gets it gets a little weird this is sort of like that where I, it's not like I sit down every day and think about these points, but they're definitely going back there. And it goes back to your point about uh, somebody who hasn't been writing as long, isn't as experienced with it, might not, you know, might not have all of that stuff internalized. They're still, you know, over time, they're still going to learn those lessons and, and figure out how to how to set the right level. Absolutely. And I think that part of the part of the experience comes back to feedback that you've received along the way from various readers as well as your own personal choices as to where you would like to take uh, the writing that you're doing and obviously when you've got a site uh, like Macworld it's obviously much larger it's got a lot more momentum behind it a lot more history and there's a different set of expectations but I think that a lot of people need to ask that question and it's something that I will admit I will confess to uh, having struggled with a little bit with tech distortion is how deep do I go you know my audience that I have on my side is not huge in fact you'd say it's probably um, you know minuscule compared to Macworld's but the, the the point is that you have to have some kind of conscious decision and say I'm going to consistently write at this sort of depth because if you don't what I fear happens is that you will lose the people that are not technical enough yes. or you can't retain the people that are technical enough. Yeah, If you try to broaden your focus, you end up not having a focus. And then yes. broadening, broadening your focus generally does not mean you have a bigger audience. It means you no. have a smaller audience because now nobody is happy. And yes. and that's, yeah, this is the lesson I learned. Um, and actually, since you're not a, a, a listener, uh, this is actually fitting. <laughs> this is the lesson I learned with The Incomparable, which is I wanted, to, I wanted it to be, that's my podcast, I wanted it to be, um, what I wanted it to be, and it is it is unabashedly the stuff I'm interested in in this in this particular area and nothing else, and that's just what it is, and that's that has resonated with a lot of people, incredibly w- w- more people than I ever expected, and yes. they res- it resonates more with them than I ever expected. It really has proven to me the power of podcasting as a medium. But that said, it is not for everybody, and I think those go together. The reason that it is. Um, it is sticking with the things that delight me gives it an energy that it wouldn't have if I felt like I needed to make some decisions to try and have more popularity or have it be broader. And likewise, I think it would maybe not resonate nearly as strongly with the people it does work for um, because of that. And so that that's, you know, that's a choice. I could make it super narrow or I could make it try to have the super broad appeal. And instead I've kind of hit exactly what I want it to be. And, 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 when it works, it works really well, and it doesn't work for everyone, and that's I'm okay with that too, right? Accepting mm-hmm. the fact that this thing that I made, uh, you know, I made it the way I wanted to. I didn't, I didn't make it for everybody, you know, to use it, mm-hmm. and that's fine because yeah. it. W- I don't think it would work if I made it for everybody. I think nobody would like it if I made it for for you know everybody out there because I'd be rethinking, second guessing myself, and and pandering and doing all sorts of things that would just make a bad product. Absolutely. And, and, I, and in some respects, I also think that that's part of what's wrong with mainstream journalism, at least traditionally, is that they tend to go for the things that will, will get the, will, will, will sell the product, get the, well, the modern equivalent page views and so on. And they, it's, mm-hmm. it's more about reaching that biggest demographic or um, having sections of the newspaper or the, the news report or, you know, whatever, that, that targets slightly different demographics to cover as many as possible. Whereas, 
the it, it seems to be a trend with 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 blogs and with um, podcasts is, is they're far more personal about what an individual would like to do. And they're not concerned with getting a massive audience. They're concerned with doing something that they're passionate about. Like you say, with The Incomparable, that's something that you're passionate about in the same way that I'm passionate about Pragmatic. It's one of those things that, you know, that adds a different spin on things. But market, well, I was about to say, I almost said market share. I guess it is kind of a bit like market share. It's like, that's not what it's about at all. It's about, it's about focusing on that audience specifically, but you're only focusing on it because that's where you're interested in. And I think that that energy gives it that... Mm-hmm that special something. It's something that didn't exist 15 years, 20 years ago, I think. I think a lot of these tools that have come into the hands of people like, you know, ourselves and well, everybody really, is that someone can choose to do that. It's so much easier now. The bar is so much lower and it's so much easier to get into this than it used to be. In um, the 200th episode of The Incomparable, I had a conversation with John Syracuse and Dan Morin and Serenity Caldwell. We were talking about uh, being, you know, nerdy teenagers and feeling isolated and how um, the Internet has really changed that. And and this is what we're talking about here is that the Internet has aggregated together, you know, large parts of the world to the point where you can have the most esoteric interest and find lots of other people who share it. And Mm. that means that there is a market, if you want to call it that, for things that were previously never considered things that would be, that would have enough of a critical mass to be worth serving because the internet puts all those people together and it might be one person in a town, but there are lots of towns and you end up with thousands of people who are interested in these esoteric subjects. It's funny, I feel like the internet, I'm I'm actually uh, recording a podcast later today with Glenn Fleischman about the uh, a version of the same topic. I feel like the mm-hmm. internet is really polarized audience, uh, at least media in terms of audiences, where you either need to be serving, trying to serve the widest possible audience, which is what you were just saying, or you are serving the most engaged, the people who are the most enthusiastic about a particular subject, and that seems to be where we are right now in terms of media on the internet. You're either trying to go for everybody, and that's you know viral videos and you know, maybe even websites like like the New York Times or Yahoo or places like that, or you are super narrow, like a lot of tech websites, where it's like we're here for people who really care enough about tech that they're going to read twenty articles about tech from our website every day. And what's missing, which I think is interesting, is people who are mildly interested in things. Uh, right now, yeah, it's sort of like right. you're either not interested in anything and feel no passion except for videos of cats. Or you are super into it and there's a website for you. But this, I, I think th- th- this leads to another challenge, which is what if you're into, into it but not super into it? I, I was listening to, uh, oh, what was that? It was, uh, oh, it was, uh, it was Random Trek, which is this podcast that Scott McNulty started out of The Incomparable. And uh, one of his guests was had admitted to having not watched a couple of the Star Trek series. And he, he was like, oh, the Star Trek fans are going to kill me. I'm like, I like the original series and the next generation. And then I kind of stopped watching. And I thought, you see, oh. there is an interesting internet effect, which is you're somebody who is actually interested in the subject, but you're not as far deep down into it as the true fans are. And so you start to sort of feel like you either have to go all in or you have to back away. And I, I think that's a weird place we're in right now culturally. And I'm not quite sure what the what the solution is, but I think it's interesting that, that there's sort of like, you either have to like completely commit. And I get this feedback from my podcast too, right? It's like, why don't you just talk about comics every week? Or why don't you just talk about TV every week? And the answer is I'm not interested in any of those enough to make it 
the same every week. That's why yeah. it's not about the same thing every week. I just yep. can't get that deep down in. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so I think that I, I think it's a, just a funny place we are so, in society where the people who are super enthusiastic about something they can find their people, and that's great. And then there's sort of the broad, uh, you know, again, click here to see pictures of cats. And then uh, there's this vast in-between that is uh, we haven't really figured out how to make that work yet. That kind of got served by magazines and newspapers and things like that where you just sort of got a general interest publication and that's kind of faded away. Absolutely right. And uh, I uh, I just want to pause for a moment and um, quickly talk about our sponsor before we continue. And um, our sponsor this this week is uh, LifeX, spelled L-I-F-X. And it's a smart light bulb that gives you previously unheard of control of your lighting. Each bulb is Wi-Fi enabled. It can give you light in whatever color of the rainbow you like. It's an energy efficient LED light bulb that you can control with your smartphone. With over a thousand lumens at your disposal, it's incredibly bright, but consumes only 18 watts of power at maximum. Although most rooms use only half of that. Controlling the brightness, color, and um, there's a range of cool effects. It's really easy on your smartphone using the LifeX smart bulb, um, using the smartphone app. The LifeX smart bulb is also made to last. It's rated to for 27 years of operation. That's at four hours a day. That's the equivalent of about 40,000 hours. You'll probably move house before you need to change the light bulb again. The LifeX bulbs support both standard Edison screw and bayonet connectors and will work at all standard voltages around the world between 100 and 240 volts AC. It has developer-friendly SDKs currently available for iOS, Android, and Ruby, which means that if you can think of a great way to control them, you can go out and build it on whatever platform you like right now. I've been testing some demo bulbs, and my kids went absolutely crazy. I set up on the disco effects where the music was playing, and it was changing the color of the lights in tune with the music, and they had a dance party in the main lounge. It was just fantastic. It was so much fun. LifeX bulbs are shipping today for only $99 US with free shipping worldwide. Simply head on over to LifeX, that's, again, that's spelled L-I-F-X dot co slash pragmatic to learn more and enter the coupon code pragmatic for 15% off the total price of your order. Thank you to LifeX for sponsoring Pragmatic. So one of the other things then to just to continue on about with, with knowing your audience is something that else that the internet has done, which some f- people get frustrated by and I've seen a few interactions with yourself and other people um, on, on Twitter in particular, uh, about the internationalization of, of what we do, mm-hmm. where I, I write an article, you know, and I guess the, the simplest and most obvious example uh, is that something's happening in the fall, which, you know, of course, in Australia, we don't call it the fall, we call it autumn, but that's not really the point. The point is that we're out by six months because everything shifted because of the tilt of the earth. So, where it's, right. it's summer where you are, but it's actually not it's now it's winter where I am right now in yeah in Australia. So that's that becomes a rather interesting dilemma. And some people, and not just that, there's also the whole uh, issue of of publishing times and time zones. And what I find interesting is that a, a, that a site such as MacWorld that has such a large audience internationally, fair enough. I I, I suspect it. Maybe you can confirm, but the majority of your readers would be based in you know North America. So perhaps. In, in that respect, some of that is taken care of, but I would expect that there's still a reasonable slice of the international audience, and I'd like you to see what you think mm-hmm. about how you approach interli- internationalization, for the want of a better word, of the articles. Well, so it's that's a great question. There's a lot there. Um, I, I think one of the one of the challenges, and this will probably go away in the next five or ten years. One of the challenges is, as a media company, we have 
we have uh, our business unit is in the U.S. and IDG is worldwide. And there's an there, there's an IDG in Australia. There's an IDG in UK and Germany and uh, many other countries. There's MacWorld in Australia. There's a MacWorld in the UK. There's a MacWorld mm-hmm. in Germany. Um, and uh, and yet we are not um, directly tied to them. We are our own business unit for the U.S. that that runs uh, MacWorld and PC World and and a couple other websites in the U.S. And, and so. The U.S. is um, – well, and the other part of this is ad serving, which is our sales force sells ads in the U.S. to companies that largely want to buy U.S. traffic. A lot of the sales that they that they do are specifying U.S. traffic. They are buying – their budgets are U.S. budgets to reach U.S. audiences. And so if half of our traffic is from outside the U.S., which is, I think, roughly the case, then half the traffic we generate can't, sur- can't fulfill the, the ads that are sold by our, our, uh, our, our sales force. So if they want to buy 6 million page views, we have to generate 12 million page views because we can't really – it's very hard to write U.S.-specific articles that generate U.S. traffic. You really are writing mm-hmm. articles in English, and people speak English not only in all the the predominantly English-speaking countries but really the world over. And yeah. so you know, this is a problem because um, I think – I said five or ten years this, this will be solved. I suspect that with the rise of ad networks, we're all going to get a lot better at monetizing – sorry to use that word, but That's we're talking right. about internet ad sales. So it's if you're ever going to use that word, now's the time. Um, <laughs> monetizing international traffic. That, that, that A lot of companies don't make – media companies don't make a lot of money and uh, off of this kind of traffic. And, you know, it would make sense that IDG, for example, with its UK – uh, business unit would um, would let those business th- those salespeople in the UK also have access to all of IDG's worldwide traffic from the UK from UK visitors, so that for example they could sell the the ads on our site for UK visitors, and that they would get a cut and we would get a cut, and that doesn't happen yet. I think I think eventually ad networks will make that all different. So part of it is that which is. Although we are, we know we are reaching half of our audience outside the U.S. Um, almost all of our revenue comes from the U.S. from U- the, the U.S. audience, and so on that level, we, um, you know, I, I've, I've I've told people this. You've seen it on Twitter, which is we're you know mm. we're a U.S. site. We're focused on the U.S. and we're aware that the rest of the world exists, but we are a U.S. site. <laughs> you know, especially when it's angry people in the U.K. We're like, there is MacWorld U.K. You know, they are focused yeah. on you. And the other That's thing right. is local localization is hard. I, it would make our jobs a lot harder if we if we tr- had to mention that it's U.S. dollars or here are what the prices are elsewhere or that this rational rationalization about why this product is best doesn't work in certain countries because this product is different and there are other products that compete there but not here. And and you know we read about Amazon and people say ah oh, but Amazon you know doesn't doesn't work except in the U S and the U K for all yeah. of these different media types it's like well that's true but you know we can't I mean we could do that and if we really felt that that our duty was to cover the entire world in detail I suppose we would do it but in reality we are in the U S speaking for a predominantly to a predominantly U S audience and that's our focus so we sure. we will mention the rest of the world but. Um, but it's hard. Um, you know, the upside is that being an English 
uh, publication opens you up to this enormous worldwide market where wherever you are in the world. And the example I always like to give is Federico Vettici, who mm-hmm. is in Italy, but he chose to do Mac stories in uh, English. And yes. so as a result, he can reach the entire English speaking world, including people who speak it as a second language with that site. And if he had chosen to do an Italian Mac site, we would probably know, not know who he who he was. And that sure. would be a shame because he's great. I talked to um, Ange Tomic. I'm going to slaughter Ange. his name. Ange Tomic, uh, from from uh, yeah, uh, Atomic. I like to call him um, the Atomic XX. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he uh, is in uh, a very tiny country with like two million people, and as a result, um, if he does he does all this stuff in his native language, and you know. um nobody can i mean that's a tiny audience and then he does storming mortal in english and that's got a huge audience that potentially right because it's addressing everybody who speaks english so so it's a it's a beautiful thing but it's also a problematic thing um and as a personally as a as a writer on Macworld, i'm very focused on the u.s and for the incomparable i am a little less focused on the u.s but at the same time i live in the u.s that is my perspective i Mm -hmm. i can be open to other perspectives but that that is that's my that's my my place so we we you yep. know we but it, it is funny like if you're a if you're a, a for-profit corporation like idg is and almost all your revenue comes from the u.s you're really actually not motivated to serve people outside of the u.s and it's not yes. like we're going to put american flags everywhere and say usa usa and try to scare people away who were from yeah. outside <laughs> the country but but it's it's actually kind of uh, it works against us being more focused on the rest of the world because, you know, those, you know, it, we don't actually make any money from outside the U.S. essentially at this mm-hmm. point. And I think if I think it would be the awareness would change if that if the business needs change. But right now it's very sure. hard to have people come to us and just say, you know it's u.s traffic and i always yeah, tell them absolutely. we can't control that we just write stories and people come we can't like write write u.s stories that's not how it works yeah understood absolutely and it's it's an interesting point about the about the financial drivers behind it with the advertising and i think that part of the problem with the advertising well there's two problems i suppose there's the tax element because if you have a company uh, that spread around the world, the individual tax laws and in individual countries can be a, can be an issue with getting revenue shifted around between you know countries. So if you get ad revenue that comes from Australia shifting that across to the US or vice versa and so on, and gets difficult. And 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 you know Apple makes profits in other countries, for example, and they can't bring that money back to the US. So I can t- right. I understand that that issue. There's also the other issue, which is a lot of these companies, like you've mentioned, Amazon, perfect example. You know they're only really active in a very small handful of countries and most of this stuff is really only available in the US. And yeah, when I get upset about that in an article, I'm not upset with you or with, you know, uh, or Macworld or anything. I'm, I'm upset that Amazon, you know, <laughs> come right. on guys, ship here, please. I want Amazon Prime. I want all that stuff too. But, um, you know, alas, but, that's the nature yeah. of... Yeah. yeah, and sometimes it rains down on us for being the bearer of that of that uh, information or the reminder oh, sure. of those frustrations. I wrote a story... You're the messenger. You got I, shot. Exactly. I, I wrote a story for Crazy Apple Rumor site a, a few years ago when it was active. Um, I guess it was probably more like 10 years ago now. John Moltz's site that uh, was... Oh, yeah. The headline was iTunes Store Never Ever Coming to Canada. And that was my <laughs> getting my frustration about it. every time we would write about iTunes in the early days of the iTunes Store, we would get angry comments from Canadians who were just furious because it's not in Canada. And, and, and you know, they would direct at us and say, 
you didn't mention it. it's not in Canada. It's like, well, how many times do we need to mention it? So then I wrote a story that was like literally Eddie Q and Phil Schiller announced that Canada, just forget it, Canada. You're never going to get it just because it was, uh, you know, I, I, mm-hmm. I totally get it. It's, 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 uh, it's, yeah, there, there. I think we're all aware of the international audience, and that that a lot of stuff that's a little less traditional is much better at at being able to serve that. But it is true, a lot of businesses too. They they you know their budget is for the for one country, and uh, so you see some you know the web is international, but large other parts of where money is in the world are not and that includes no. things like why is amazon not in more countries part of it is rights issues you know yes, part part right. of part of it is that other businesses are not like movies and tv and things like that require separate and mu- music even require separate deals for every country even though the internet doesn't work like that and all of sure. us who have been on here for a while we're citizens of the internet it shouldn't matter it, you know it shouldn't matter where that company is that's selling me software because i can just download it and give them a credit card number and they get money and i software and we're done uh it shouldn't it shouldn't matter and yet it in a lot of other places and we know it won't matter eventually but right now it does and so i think that that all factors into it too it is Mm -hmm. i love the fact that our stuff reaches a a broader audience and i know with the incomparable that that podcast reaches a an amazing number of countries and i love that it's it's fantastic but um Mm -hmm. but but it is it is a it is a real challenge, but we're not doing it despite anybody, not even Canada. No, no, <laughs> no. Uh, and this is the thing: is that I, I didn't expect it. You know, obviously that uh, I, I didn't expect that you would be. It's just that it's one of those things that I, I try and, and I guess my, my background is, is obviously very different because I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a, um, a, a tiny little blog in, in a corner of the internet, if there is such a thing as a corner in the internet, t- uh, technically. But anyway, the point is that it's a little very, very small dot blip on a radar, on the corner of a radar somewhere. And, you know, I want to make my articles, when I write them, to be, uh, when I say internationalized, it's simply you strip out the stuff that is not location-specific. Right, right. So, yeah, you know, instead of saying it's going to be in the fall, you'd say that would be in likely September, October or something like that. Um, you know, and then, of course, I, I when I was thinking this about this before the show, I thought to myself, well, what if you're not working on a Gregorian calendar, I suppose? And I guess you ought to draw a line at some point, don't you? But I mean, I, I, This article that I have open right now in BB Edit actually uses the phrase, do this fall for OS 10 Yosemite. And it's difficult <laughs> because the, other, the alternative there is for me to say, do between September and November or do between September, mid-September and mid-December of this year, which is, yeah. again, too far to go. But, it you doesn't know, flow. Right, and and I could say do this fall, spring in the southern hemisphere, but again, that's a, well, that doesn't a, a, flow either. It's kind of yeah, so it, it's hard. But if you're in if you're in Australia and you're trying to reach that broader audience, I mean, the larger selection of your potential audience is in North America and and uh, Europe, right? So you sure. you you. You know, and that's what Vitici probably goes through every day, which is you know he's, you know he's modeling I think kind of a U.S. centric audience to a certain yes. degree, but but it also is just this knowledge that the broader they are, the more people they're appealing to. But it's tricky. Yeah. It's fun. It's great, but it is these are all problems that we have. Uh, you know, every time we list a price, you know, mm-hmm. every time we do a what Mac should you buy, right? The 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 way Apple does its char- its prices in in especially in Australia where it. They're often completely out of whack with exchange rates and therefore horribly overpriced. That was always yeah. the the knock on Apple in Australia was that they they didn't adjust their prices for the exchange rate 
uh, mm-hmm. very often. And so you'd end up with these, you know, just ridiculously out of control prices, um, you know, that that would completely change the matters. And, uh, you know, I guess what yeah. I would say to that is I'm glad there's an Australian Macworld to talk yeah, about to, that. And they get our, our the stories hate. and they can fix them and make them yeah, actually well. relevant for Australia. Yeah, well, that's it, it, that's true. And and I, if, when I do read Macworld, I'll, I'll, I'll tend to actually, it may sound strange, but I actually read a bit of both. And, yeah, I can. You, you can tell the the stories that they've um, that they've taken from the the main US site and then you know sort of filtered them for the Australian site, right? And as opposed to the ones that are locally written. But you're right; they do they do tend to uh, localize it a little bit. Uh, so that it's it's good to have, but not every site has that, of course. So in any case, that's um, I, I think we've uh, talked about that that enough. I just want to move on <laughs> if we can. Sure. <laughs> so okay. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is managing the length of um, of your article. We sort of touched on this briefly before, but it's it's a little bit about the technical depth. But one of the problems that I've that I've seen is that there seems to be a, it's hard to draw the line between what is technically a long form article anymore and what's considered to be the right sort of length. If you look at a site like The Verge, for example, where most of their articles are really only several paragraphs long. If their reviews are there in depth, then you know they can be much longer, probably the the 5,000, 6,000 word kind of length. But it's it's interesting and difficult at the same time to for me anyway to gauge how long an article should be. And I guess I'm curious about your thoughts as to how you manage the length of the article based on, well, I suppose based on the topic more than anything I would expect. Yeah, that's, I, that's a constant... Uh constant question i i Mm. um part of it goes back to what why are you um who are you trying to reach and do they want more do they want less and 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 you know we have this we have this back and forth all the time do we want to write write a a thousand word article about a pair of headphones probably not that's probably too much detail we're not a headphone website We'd be better off writing a thousand word article about all the headphones we looked at and which one was best. Yeah. Not... Leave that to Marco. Marco. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. This, this is this is the thing is that is that you can you can go that too far that way and you can go too far the other way and and not have enough information and people get people get angry about that and it it, it every story every story is different and and you're trying to imagine that that audience that that. Uh, is going to be is going to be receiving it length you know i i suffer from this i write long i write way too yes. long and um and sometimes i think that's and like i said some people think that's great and some people think that it's way too long and i'm in the great camp i'm long, i'm well is fine <laughs> that my my target audience does not feel bad about an eight thousand word long iphone review nope. um that's the you know and maybe they would feel bad about a a, a fifteen thousand word long one but i i write them as long as i think it takes i and i don't i tend not to shoot for a word count for those things but okay, there are other there are other times when you're just trying to get the information out there so you know i got a call the other day about apple killing aperture and i wrote a thing that was probably 700 words that said yeah you know apple killed aperture here's what they said here's what this means here's one paragraph of background about like when it was introduced and when lightroom came out and you know i was done and there was no more that needed to be said and for news i think that's the case a lot of the verge stories that are two paragraphs long they're news they're cheap they move on to the next thing there's some search engine optimization happening there where they're just (laughs) trying you know it's the economics of it they're paying somebody you know i don't know what they're paying them but let's just say 50 bucks for a 
news post and they work sure. you know for half the day and they post as many stories as they can and it and it gets people to the site but they're not the prestige stories that they're that they're doing so i don't know yep. it's a it's a great question i don't i don't have a great answer other than to say that i try very hard to just sort of write what i think is relevant and see what the length is um that that all said sometimes the length is insane and uh yeah then it's a challenge for my editors to decide if they want to cut it or not yeah that's just a little brief brief aside then about editing because your job title at the moment are you still editorial director because i lost track of your job i am title. i am editorial director for idg's consumer uh, right business unit so, yeah so if you're the editorial director who edits the editorial director's stuff yeah who watches the watchmen <laughs> well everybody needs an That's editor it. everybody needs an editor so yes. um i uh when i i don't you know I don't edit as many stories as I used to, but they're lead editors for all my websites. And and yes, and this has always been the case that when I write something, somebody else edits it. We have a peer review system. We actually mm-hmm. don't have copy editors working on our website anymore. It's all okay. peer review. You have somebody else who looks at it. You might put it in, you know, I might put it in our content management system myself and uh, and get it ready to go. But before it goes live, I'm going to send that link to somebody and say, could you look at this? Or I'll just mail them the markdown file that I wrote and they will edit that and put it in themselves. So uh, it can vary uh, with my uh, Macworld stuff these days. It's mostly Dan Miller or Dan Morin doing that. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it has varied over time. Um, when he worked for us, John Seff used to look at a lot of my stuff too. And Phil Michaels looks at, at my stuff. Uh, sometimes and and you know you find somebody who is sort of responsible for that story and you and and they edit it and and you know if we have disagreements I I you know I try I try not to demand you know my invoke my privilege and say no I want it to run that way I I, I very very yeah, very rarely do that I like I like to my argument is that I wrote it this way. And their argument is they don't they want to change it. And usually that's where it goes. Occasionally I'll say, well, actually, I was doing that for this reason. Here's why. And if they say, oh, OK, that's fine, then it's a, then it's good. And if they say, well, the reason I changed it is this, then I'll let it, I'll let it go. And it's a conversation. And I try very hard mm-hmm. to have that be not something where my position uh, factors in because everybody does need an editor and 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 I, I whenever I talk about handing something into my editor people get very baffled because they're like but I thought you were the lead editor it's yeah. like well I am but you know I, there's still somebody who is expecting that story who is going to mm-hmm. read it and and see if it makes any sense and get it ready to go and and that's you know that that's also the case if you're not at my level if you're a news person who's then writing a feature story for you're writing it for someone else you you know you're not going to edit your own story that's not no it's not possible it's an interesting challenge for people that are writing their own blog where technically they have no editor and it's i find i'm not really sure what the right answer is i mean is it if you were and this is um something that i've sort of struggled with because i've um I've worked with a few editors on and off over the years, but um, more off than on, actually. But anyway, and um, it's it's been a very eye-opening experience having a different person's perspective, especially someone who's been doing it for a long time as an editor. But if you're doing your own blog, um, I, yep. almost, I almost think that there is some value in, as it were, getting some peer review from people that you know either on, on Facebook or on Twitter if you really want to polish what you're doing rather than just putting it out there without having any kind of peer review. But funnily enough, I don't think a lot of people do that. 
and I'm wondering if there's if, if there's like a, a fear or a stigma of some kind because it's meant to be, oh, I can just blog about whatever I want, as opposed to the point of a peer review is to improve the quality of what you're putting out, and in in some respects to give you that different perspective, and that helps you to focus. I wonder if that's something that people should consider, and maybe that's something I should be considering as well. It's yeah, it's mm. hard. It's hard. I mean, part of it is that the blogging systems generally don't let you do that, right? <laughs> they, they you can yeah, post true. it or not, and then you're like, well, what do I do? Do I do I send them the text that I'm going to paste in, and then they're not going to see if there are any images or whatever? It gets it gets complicated. It would be nice if they if they all had sort of a preview URL that you could go you could send to people and they could see it, but nobody else would know that it's there. And 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 because uh, that's what we do with, internally is we will send around the preview stuff that's not on, that's on the staging server and not the live server, and people can look right. at that even just to give a thumbs up. When I'm doing stuff on my own, you know that. Um, you you read it over more times and you uh you know i for big things i would say yes it's very hard for things throughout the day to keep pestering your friends and saying could you look at this could you look at this i think you know mm. if 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 you've got Pushing somebody friendship yeah unless you've got somebody who also has their own site and you sort of like go back and forth and say hey could you ch- could you check this out and then they say could you check this out and you're kind of like helping each other out i could see how that yeah. would work also mm-hmm. the audience i mean the beautiful thing about the web is unlike print where it gets printed and that's it the web is changeable, so you know I hate to say it, but one of the great things about the web is uh, if you if you post something and your audience is you know they're going to be they're going to be paying attention and they're going to tell you they're going to say no yes. that's not true. I did this the other day with one of my Yosemite pieces. I I wrote a thing about private browsing and didn't mention the fact that there is a private browsing mode in older versions of Safari because I never use it and I know it's there but I just never use it. And so yeah. I had two people say, well, actually private browsing is in Safari now. And within five minutes of that story going live, that paragraph had be rewritten had been rewritten to make it more clear that there was now a per window private browsing mode and that the old private browsing mode wasn't i didn't find it very useful because it was under the safari menu and it was like everything went private and then you had to go back to public and and so in that case the audience helped those people who saw my link on twitter and gave me comments back in those first 5 or 10 minutes within you know uh, presumably like 90% of the people who read that story never saw those issues because the audience had had uh had fixed them for me Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I, you know, I would try very hard to have everything be perfect before it goes out there. But the fact is, you know, if it's just you, um, other people are, and in this case, my editor didn't see that either. So, okay. so, you know, so relying on the audience, I think is a good thing. And I think that's okay. I think, I think relying on them, um, to notice things and be able to fix your, is fix those things is perfectly fine. Um, although it's always better to have a second set of eyes on something always. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, way of thinking about things is that I, I then start to see that the your audience essentially become your assistant editors. And the larger your audience, the more that assistance, well, wanted or unwanted assistance um, yeah. and feedback. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, all right, cool. So I think we need to keep moving on. And, and the next thing I wanted to talk about, and because there is actually, it's I was surprised. I thought, yeah, I wonder if I'm going to have enough to talk to Jason about. There actually is quite a lot to talk about. And one of the things I really wanted to touch on is what are the elements that you think go into making a good article? And I'm going to start just with my list and, and we'll go from there, I guess. All and right. that is, I think that in order to make the best pos- possible article is that you need to... S- you need to start stick with the message. Well, first of all, be clear about the message that you're trying to convey and stick to it. So I think that rambling is the enemy. Um, 
Definitely. And I'm guilty of that time and again. And I'm and I, I like to say I'm I'm working on it. So hand up. Yep, I'm working on that. Uh, I I tend to start when I'm building an article with um, a beginning and an ending more so than an outline. Although then I sort of tend to fill in the outline in the middle. And and I guess that that um, sort of mixing the two up there. But I guess. For me, it's about the message. It's and we've already talked about understanding your audience, so that's sort of implied. And we've already talked about that, but I just I find there's so many articles out there that just aren't focused enough. And I guess yes. What are your thoughts? Um, th- that's ooh, that's a pretty short list that you got. <laughs> um, so I have a longer list, but I just realized that we've covered it off a previ- previously. Uh, all, right. all right. Well, rambling rambling is the enemy. Um, there's a lot when I'm editing stories by people who have not um, done a lot of writing before. There's a lot of throat clearing. We call it, which is the um, okay. as a you know. Pro- I think I think professional writers uh or, or i don't even want to say professional experienced writers because not all experienced yes. writers are professionals sure. um experienced writers they are as guilty of throat clearing as anybody else but they um they learn to do it and then get rid of it because it's not what the article is and this is the you know you take a long run up to get started with what you're saying you say well you know operating system releases are 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 annual now from apple and uh, yosemite is the latest one and in the past i've had issues with the included apps that were there there was that time when the, the leather texture was on the calendar app and and then they lost one of the panes in the contacts app because of skeuomorphism well hmm. you know yosemite is here and it's been a year since with since the first movements in this front when they did the you know and right and, and they and now but now i'm going to tell you about the apps in yosemite um, yeah, right. and that that just is everybody does that, and you're sort of thinking you're taking a run up to like what is this really about? Here's the background. I'm trying to figure it out, and you know the fact is that you need to your lead, your first paragraph or a couple paragraphs or however you want to structure it needs to be what is this thing about? And and so you write that long thing, and then you look and say, oh, what I really need to say is, hey. OS 10 updates mean apps get updated and a bunch of apps got updated. Here they are. And that's it. And that's all you, you know, that's all you need to say there. So that happens all the time. There's throat clearing, there are personal anecdotes that are off topic. I think personal anecdotes can be really funny as a sides. Um, and if they, if they do illuminate what you're writing, but there are a lot that are sort of like, why is this here? I don't want to hear about this trip that you took. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I don't read every one of your articles. And so I don't know the, the, the story you've been interweaving in every single article about your own personal life i don't want to hear it um Mm -hmm. it doesn't answer the question of what are you what are you here to do so i think that that's always the question that i ask myself when i'm looking at leads is what is the story here to do what is its purpose what's it trying to get across because stories are can anything written is a it's a machine to have an impact on somebody else's brain you are trying to change the way they think or inform them or do something and and one of the things you have to do is say up front hey this is what the story is going to be about otherwise they're just going to close the browser tab they're 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 not going to read on unless you say here's what i am here to do um Mm -hmm. and then you you talk about having a beginning and ending uh more than an outline i i i will have outlines that are generally not outlines but they're lists of things it's like these are the things i want to cover and then as i go i'll see them and i'll uh, in my little just like down below in my text editor as i'm writing i'll know these are are points i need to hit and occasionally something will come to me and i'll put it in as a point i need to hit and then when i get there i'll hit it and i'll delete that item but it's more like a a a list of things to be crossed off that i should mention these things yes um I, i do think um 
good beginnings are good, like I just said, and you, you want to know what you're there for. And I, tying it up in a bow at the end is great, as long as it isn't, you know, kind of too ridiculous. It's it's always nice to be able to say, uh, to let the reader know they've reached the end in some way, tonally, not to say the end, but to say, you know, something that wraps it up to make people feel like, oh, okay, I, I completed this experience. If they get to the end, which a lot of readers don't, you should give them a reward and, and say, yes, you mm. got to the end. Good job. But but it's interesting you should say that. Sorry, can I just interrupt just for a second? A lot of readers don't make it to the end. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. A lot of readers don't make, make it to the end. If you look at something like Chartbeat, which is a a, a real-time analytics tool that we use, uh, it actually measures where, where people are on the page, and boy, that's depressing. So many wow. people so many people don't get more than halfway down any any given article. People just, you know, they load the page and then they go away. Um, you know, some people do. This is why journalists are trained about the inverted pyramid, which is you put the most important things on top, and then you continue writing your order, article in decreasing order of importance until you get to the bottom. And that was partially because newspapers would sometimes just cut the story off at an arbitrary point and others also because readers would abandon the story at an arbitrary point and there's some truth to that even now although I don't write most of my stories in that in that fashion because I'm not writing you know hard news stories so much anymore but um, the other thing I want to mention is is working with my daughter who is 12 and she is (laughs) frustrated often by writing there are a couple things that I tell her as a writer. I say, first off, writing is hard for everyone, including writers. So yes. don't get frustrated just because it's hard for you and think, I can't write because it's hard. Because even professional, successful writers also find it hard. It's just hard. But she gets stuck on beginnings. She gets stuff on in, stuck on introductions. And so when you mentioned it, it's important to have a beginning and an ending, one of the things I tell her is, you don't have to have the right beginning now. You don't, you know, we don't write necessarily linearly. You don't need to write the beginning that you're going to keep forever. Write a beginning, right? Have it be terrible. Have it be generic. Have it be a placeholder that says, this is the beginning of the story. I'm going to tell a story about this and then get into it. And then when you're done, you're going to see the story you told. And, and that beginning is going to be way easier to write because you're going to know where you're going because you've got the rest of it. So that's something that is um, also important is not just having, you know, an idea of the story that you're telling, but that the, the introduction, that's where you get throat clearing is somebody doesn't know what they're writing about yet. So just put a placeholder, put something generic, put something terrible that you'll never use and then write your story and then come back to the top and say, oh, well, mm-hmm. now I know what my story is. Um, that's a good technique that that I think more people could probably do. And okay. I think a lot of people cool. don't think don't think about it. a lot of people don't think about writing as a as a craft. They don't think about that there are techniques and tricks and that, you know, mm. when you're a you know, when you're a novelist, when you're writing a novel, um, and I learned this as I was writing one of my unpublished novels that I've written in the last few years, is, yeah. you know, it's not like you put in um, all the foreshadowing and symbolism and, and, and everything that's leading up to the plot twists uh, when you write, write it through the first time. <laughs> you know, it's not like writers have everything down and then they write it from start to finish and then they press print and it goes to the publisher and it's done. They go back and ladle, ladle that stuff in after the fact when, they, when they've taken the journey and they know where their story is going. And even on short form stuff like what we write on the internet about technology, technology the same holds true you don't you know you don't write it from start to finish you can write it from the middle with something generic at the top and then go back and fix it when you when you're when you're at the end so you know mm-hmm. people uh, writing gets gets um mi- m- treated mystically and is mystified in a way that it needs to not it doesn't need to be that it, it's you know they're tricks and sure you don't and have I, to write from top to bottom issue. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and that that's a that's a very good point and leads into the next thing I want to talk about, which is revision. But before we do, I think the pro- the, the the problem people face is that they see it from the outside looking in if they're trying to get into into writing more professionally is they just see the finished result. They don't see the steps in the process that the writer's gone through to reach that final result. And yeah, you know, and I think that there is a certain degree of oh, well they they they're such a good such a good writer for, you know, but I just can't put my finger on why, but uh, whereas if they learn more about the difference, it is okay to start in the middle if you want. Uh, but I mean, just the way I personally do it, and this is this is definitely not my my why way of doing it is the only way of doing it. Sure as heck isn't. But simply, there's different ways of attacking the problem, and it's okay to to approach writing anything, and and that includes documentation in engineering as well as for a you know, blog as well as for a site like MacWorld is it's okay to revise it because you can start an article and think, you know, I've just got to get the words down and then I will I will polish that later. There seems to be a bit of a, a perception, I think. Is there a perception? I think that people like the idea that good writers are just able to sit down, churn out a piece, not do much revision, and it's all good. And that that is somehow a measure of whether you're a good good blogger or writer for the internet because it's like I can I can sit down in 30 minutes churn out a piece hit publish and it's all it's all good whereas I tend to prefer and I think and I'm I've this is my own personal bias here I acknowledge but I prefer to look at articles that have had more consideration that are a little bit longer that I know have ha- have been through revision and have have been refined to a point where you know they are more fully fleshed out and I tend to shy away from the ones that are, you know, typed in, quick review, hit publish because they tend to not have the depth and I guess revision is one of the, the next topic I wanted to talk about is revision and one of the problems that I face is that I go through varying levels of revision based on what kind of, you know, article I'm writing. At the moment, I'm in the middle, of, I've just finished a review for something and I am... I'm finding myself revised, uh, going back and rereading it, and I think I've reread. Yesterday, I think I reread it six times, and I'm still tweaking it. And how? At what point is the right point to draw a line and say, right, that's it, and hit and hit basically stop and hit publish? And how do you know? And I guess that's a question I've always wanted to ask you. Oh yeah, well, so the the line that I always use, and I can't even remember who said it originally, but it's it's uh, no artist finished, uh, only abandoned. <laughs> um, and, and that that is that is you could go on forever and that that i use that a lot for podcast editing these days because you could literally edit a podcast forever and you just you, you just don't do it um no i don't and and i don't either but uh, the same goes true for writing you know you, you there it, it's hard to find the end um it can vary based on what the story is i've had stories that have um plagued me where i have spent a lot of time going back and forth and on on how things are worded it depends on how you write too i i do a lot of editing as i as i go for my articles for for macworld where i'm um you know i will i'll write it and change it and and move along in in a different way i think as a writer in general i am uh i think in, in the spectrum of writers i am probably a cleaner first draft person than many um Mm -hmm. a lot of my stuff is not dramatically changed from my first draft when it gets to the end but um you know i i do more structural things i'll move things around um i'll leave oftentimes i'll leave things in the middle that are marked to come back later because i don't know the answer or i 
am not able to check at any given time and I'll just write around it. I'll just say, you know, put lab test results here and just keep going yeah. in order to keep the flow going. And then in the end, you come back and you've got to sand off all those little blemishes and get it get it into a into a better condition. Sometimes you write a dummy uh, lead because you're not ready to go and yep. uh, you come back to it and do it later. When I'm... Um, the novels that I've written have all been in during National Novel Writing Month, which is this uh, thing at nano, nanorimo.org. NaNoWriMo. You can go to it. I'm on the board of directors of NaNoWriMo now because I believe in it so wow. much. And cool. those, you know, the whole point with Nano is is not to stop and edit yourself, turn off your self-editor and just keep moving forward and write 50,000 words in 30 days. Because a lot of times what writers get bogged down is they're so obsessed over the sentence that they've written that they won't go on to the next one. And yeah. I would say that for all kinds of writing that is a good that is a good tip that if you are afraid if you if you believe that writers um just make these amazing things appear full blown right off of their fingertips as they're typing into their into their keyboard and that you'll never measure up you would that you should be paralyzed about that sentence but the fact is that's not how it works and writers write great writers write terrible things and then they fix them later so i guess yeah. what i'd say is if you're if you're having trouble writing the first thing you should do is um stop editing yourself um get the words down and make that commitment to go back and walk through it again when you're done to make it better because what you'll find is that you'll get in a rhythm and a lot of the stuff you write in that in that scenario will will be good um and you can fix the stuff that's bad but uh you will have written it and having it be written is believe it or not number one now having yeah. it be good is number two number one is having it be written <laughs> and a lot of people get so hung up on number two that number one never happens and you can't do that so you know my i would say my novels the reason my novels haven't been published or self-published um because i would self-publish them i i wouldn't have a problem just to get them out there um yeah. the reason they haven't been is because i know i need to rewrite them i need to revise them and um and they're huge and so that's become kind of daunting for me but uh on the on my smaller scale stuff my tech writing you know it, the same thing applies i i try to i try to write it and if i come to a point where i am up against a wall i will usually put something in brackets that says um you know something about this here and then i just keep going and i'll come back to the something later either when i'm done or when i'm at a better point and i can i can grasp that thing moving ahead and continuing the writing so i'd say revision is a great tool to help you the existence of revision is a tool to help you get the words down that that that's its most important thing and everybody does need to either a second set of eyes. I would say I'd much rather have an editor than revising myself. Um, yeah. I will do some revision myself. If I have a chance, I will give it a second read of my own and make changes. But the number one thing would be to get somebody else to look at it if I can afford that time and if I've got somebody who's willing. Um, but that, for me, the most important thing about the existence of re revising your writing is that it gives you a blessing to keep writing, even though you're not sure that what you're writing is good enough. Because in a lot of cases, it actually will be good enough when you read it back. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's so easy to, to keep your inner, inner editor on and never be able to get off that sentence. Awesome. No, that, that's, that's, that's good advice and certainly something I need to start. I, I need to stop revising my current uh, <laughs> review and just move on. When, so, when, when you have to write 1,800 words or whatever, 1,666 words per day for NaNoWriMo, you get really good at just getting <laughs> the words down. And there's yeah. something to that. I mean, this is what professional writers say is they're writing a couple thousand words a day and this is what they do is they will get it down. And then there's a revision period later, but you just got to get the words down and don't let it. My daughter does this too, like I said, and, it, you know, 
you just can't let yourself get paralyzed. That is the number one problem with writing is, you know, you get paralyzed about is this sentence good enough? And, you know, I don't know what to do here. And just get it, get the words out. Once the words start flowing, you can fix them later. Cool. Excellent. All right. Um, so just one more, one more thing before we right. wrap up. And uh, I just, I want to talk about working with an editor and we are, we've talked about other people reviewing your work and so on. And I know I've, I've talked, I've talked about this previously on, on, on previous episodes uh, of, of the show about, uh, about different kinds of review design reviews in particular, but handling criticism and taking, well, I, I say handling criticism, taking on board feedback. There's a whole bunch of different expressions that, that cover the, the, the same sentiment, which is you're putting your work um, out there publicly, of course, when you do hit publish, but in order to, work with a site like Macworld or, uh, you know, to get to get work in, say, the magazine or you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different, you know, there's, there's, the list is endless out there. You do have to work with an editor and because in the end, the editor sets the tone for that publication slash site, sorry. And what I've found interesting is that the people that haven't worked with, well, okay, maybe I should, re, I'll, I'll rephrase this from my, my perspective, is that I had not worked a great deal with editors per se until the last few years. And I started to work with um, editors on and off about for about four years ago. And it was quite a, a shock to the system for me. And there's, I think there's a lot of people that are be listening to this that don't, that haven't actually worked with an editor before. And, when I first started working with an editor, it was it was difficult because my my perspective of what they were trying to convey to me was it was highly critical. It was very much like, well, um, you know, this needs more detail. That's not really the right way of putting that. And who is your audience? And some of this we've already sort of talked about. But I guess one of the things is that what I wanted to explore because you've been an editor for quite some time is when you are actually working with an editor, I guess it's about not taking it personally and, and learning from it. And in the end, you have to care about what, you, what you're writing being on what the, the editor is in, a, in many respects is a gatekeeper. And you have to provide things in the format for the publication that you're writing for as opposed to taking that as a criticism of this is the way that you write and I don't like it. It's like, well, no, no, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like yep. you've got to get your head in the right space. It's like the editor is there to help you. And I just, I'm curious from your perspective on the other side of the fence, you know, do you perceive a lot of uh, frustration from people that are trying to get their work published when, when it comes past your desk as an editor? Yeah, I mean, and all of us, you know, editors generally have also been writers and are writers, and they've been on the other side of it, too. I, I would say, you know, a few things. First off, it is a collaborative process, and the best way to think of it, especially if you're doing something on an assignment from somebody else, is you are collaborating with your editor. Your editor gave you the assignment. They're actually hiring you to write what they want for their website or publication. Um, and so it is not... Uh, your, you know, your canvas, it, you know, it is not your space. It is their space and they know the audience and they asked you for this story. And so they would like it. And this is especially true if it's sort of news or a review. It's different, a little different if it's an opinion piece. But even then there may be a format issue where the editor knows what the pieces are like and, and maybe you don't. So the best thing to do in those situations is always to just think of it as a collaboration. The editor is not there 
to embarrass you. The editor's job, the editor's there ideally to do two things. And the first thing is they want to work with you to get the story in publishable form for their publication. So, um, you know, they're trying to make it better. They're not trying to make you feel bad. And if you listen to what they have to say and learn from it, and this is the key, and it's harder for some writers to get this than others. If you learn from it, you are learning what they want so that you can give it to them. Because again, you're not, it's their publication. You're not going to educate them on how uh, you write so that they will accept your particular style. You are... Uh, learning what they like so you can give them what they like. And you know what? Professional writers, you know, the real pros, they know that if they're writing for X, they're going to do it this way. And if they're writing for Y, they're doing it this way. Even even potentially for the same website or magazine or whatever, you might say, oh, well, this person likes this kind of article and this person likes this kind of article. And and that's just, that's just part of uh, being a writer is knowing who your audience is. And, you know, audience number one is the person who assigned you that story. So you Absolutely. need to, you need to, you need to do that. So ideally, number one, it, you need to think it's a collaborative process. They're there to help. Um, they want to get what they want. Um, but you can learn something from that. And and ideally, number two is that they're thinking, I am helping you be a better writer. I'm helping you um, by using my experience as an editor uh, about what we like and what we don't like to let you know now, because a lot of writers don't know. They just don't know. I mean, how are you How are you to know before you try uh, about, you know, we like to do it this way or there's a kind of thing you could do or, oh, you should call the company for a comment here. Oh, well, I didn't think about that. I, I, I could do that, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, so ideally, editors also view themselves as, as developing not just stories but developing writers. I will tell you, there is nothing more precious to an editor than a reliable good writer they are going to want to find those people they want to cultivate those people because eventually then it's just like hey can you do the story sure and they give you the story and you're like all right and you publish the story with very little work and that's really great and Mm -hmm. slogging through changes maybe in the days of huge staffs and big budgets this was different where it was sort of like everything had to be a vanity fair article but these days let me tell you with small staffs and very little copy editing and things like that um, editors really do want to work with you to to make what you give them better because that makes their jobs easier and it makes you have a good connection and a, a market for your work that uh, that you understand and you know how to provide what they're asking for so you know i would say it's easy to take it personally. There may be disagreements. It may not be what they want might not be something you are willing to give or are prepared to give. And that's fine um, that you don't have to view it as you failed necessarily. Although, I mean, that happens. Sometimes people are not good writers and that I don't want to pretend that that's not the case. But there are also lots of times where the, the issue is not that the issue is what you do is not what they want. And that's not about you know, there's a judgment there, but the judgment isn't you suck. The judgment is, you know, you know, we need this. And if you can't give it to us, then we shouldn't work together. And that's okay too. But I do think it it is. Yeah. And and it is collaboration. And the best editors are trying to collaborate and communicate. And that doesn't always come across. Sometimes you have to glean it yourself as a writer. You have to look at what they did to your article and say, why did they do that? And maybe even ask why. So why the changes I want to learn here that will help editors are happy in most cases to explain why they made the changes they made if you ask because again it's showing a sign that a writer wants to learn and improve um Mm -hmm. you know and and yeah it is 
this isn't especially if you're doing things like tech writing it's not it's not art it, there's an art to it but it is also something that you know on your own site you can do whatever you want but on their site they they know what they want and you they're going to give you money <laughs> for the product that they're asking for and if if i ordered a table and the table I got from the table maker was like it had too many legs and the wood was different and the chairs didn't look anything like we agreed on. I would not pay them for that table. I would refuse that table. Yeah. Right. I'm paying Absolutely. for the table that I I may have consulted with them. We may have had a good conversation. We all agreed on what we wanted. But in the end, I'm paying for the product that I I, I desire. And mm -hmm. and so, yeah. And, and, you know, if it's fiction, things like that, then that relationship is very different because, um, you know, but even then I would I would encourage writers to think of editors as as um, as collaborators and mm -hmm. that that the writing process is, you know, is improved by collaboration. You may not always agree and that's fine, but uh, it, it, they are trying. The goal is generally to make what you're writing better. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and so Absolutely. that should be teamwork and you know the writer's not out there by themselves they're they, you know ideally this is you're part of a team and the editor is in in your corner um or you know they want you to be in their corner if you know if you're writing for them and they want a certain thing because that's how their website does it then they want you know they want you to get what it is like to write for them so that the next time you do it you don't have to have that conversation it's just oh yeah you you got it you know what writing a review for macworld is like and then that's it and then mm -hmm. that's the beginning of a beautiful friendship <laughs> well certainly hope so so okay excellent well the the the, the last the question i want to wrap up on is um is about advice and this is the sort of uh <sighs> I'll, I'll tell you what i what i think but i'm far more interested and i'm sure listen will be far more interested in what you think and that is um i was i was asked recently um in real life about um how <laughs> what what advice they would i would give them regarding getting into quote unquote um you know blogging and i'm like well it's really easy actually <laughs> um you just get you just turn up and write but i think if i had to give any one piece of advice about anyone that wanted to actually get their writing published professionally i'm the wrong guy to ask because my work hasn't really been published uh, professionally and you know i'm i'm sort of working towards that at some point but you know i i have a you know a career as an, as an engineer and i don't have have to do that if i don't want to but the point is that there's a lot of people out there that do want to have their work published and i guess my 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 advice based on my perspective at this point is first of all to care about what you're writing and to acknowledge the fact that you need to improve and there's always room for improvement but that's probably of less interest to what you would suggest. So if there's a single piece of advice that you could give anyone that was interested in getting in taking the step from from blogging whatever they felt like to actually writing professionally and actually writing for a site like Macworld, what advice would you give them? Well, I mean, you your your uh, scenario has actually uh, touched on some of my advice, which is one of the great things about the web today is that you can write without um, without anybody's permission. And that's a good mm -hmm. sign. That's a good start because if you show interest in what you're writing and you've got examples of the things that you've written, um, and you can put those up on your own, start, start your own. If you want to write about tech, start your own tech blog and write some stories and show that you, um, show that you care about it and that you want to do a good job doing that. Because as an editor, I'll look at that. If somebody says, Oh yeah, I would like to write for you. And I say, what have you written about tech? And they say nothing. 
that's a lot harder yeah. conversation than if they say, well, I've got a, I've got a blog where I posted a bunch of stuff of different kinds. Here it is. Check it out. And that's good because then I have writing samples from you and I have seen mm-hmm. that you actually care about this and you cared enough to set up a, a little, a little blog about your pet subject, whatever it is. And that, that all, that all goes into it. Cause like I said, edit, editors really like to find good writers. It's, it's, um, there aren't, <laughs> especially in something like technology where you have to understand the technology and be a good writer, boy, it's hard to find good tech yeah. writers. And, and it's, it's great when you find somebody like that. So that's, I think step one is having your stuff be out there. I used to say things like contact Adam angst and, and say, you want to write something for tidbits, which was, yes, I was just turning people over to Adam and saying, good luck. Talk, mm. talk to Adam. But you know, okay. tidbits was an example of a non paying market where they were really good at working with unpublished writers and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't make a living at it or even necessarily get paid, but you would get your name, you know, in print or at least on their website and in their newsletter if you if you worked with them. And that was a good sign. And then, you know, Macworld would say, hey, you've been published in, in tidbits. That's great. Um, that was a good sign, like from something else. So some of it is mm-hmm. is uh, finding somewhere else. If you want to go work at X, you know, maybe you start with writing something for Y or Z, and eventually you make your way up to X. That that can happen. But I think number one is demonstrating, you know, your interest in having uh, what we used to call in print days clips, having writing samples online. And if you can't do that for somebody else's blog, where you're you know, a contributor because you don't know anybody, then I would say start with your own. And uh, mm-hmm. even if nobody ever goes to your your blog, um, you will have, and maybe you just want to start your own blog and not not work for anybody else. That's fine. Just do that. And if it, even if it's just a means to an end of you being noticed by other people, um, having something to point to and say, I did that. I'd love to do this sort of thing for you. That goes a long way. So I think that's number one. Um, when I've hired people for jobs, I'm just throwing this in here. When I hired people for yep. jobs, demonst- again, demonstrating your enthusiasm is always going to go far. You, you know, if if you're if it's a Macworld job, and you are demonstrably into Apple stuff, that helps because if it's a Macworld job and you are not into Apple stuff and don't really care, boy, you know that's a bad fit. But then, yeah. but then I would say just as important is demonstrably into media, into writing, into publishing things on the internet into being, you know, living on the internet. I, I, I would have job interview applicants for entry level jobs at Macworld. And I would say, you know, what did, you know, what have you written? And they'd say, well, I was an English major. And I'd say, did you write for your school newspaper? Um, yeah. No. Did you do a school magazine? No. Did you have a website? No. So what, what are your writing samples? And like, I have some papers that I wrote and I took a journalism class. It's like you did no extracurricular or anything. No. It's like, you know what? I'm probably not going to hire that person because they are not yeah. showing a passion for being a writer. Um, and that's a bad, that's a, just a really bad sign. That's somebody who is mm-hmm. theoretically like casting about for, trying to find a job that they want. And they were an English major. So maybe writing is for them. But yeah. if they, if they really wanted to do it, it, they would not be able to keep it in. They would have found an outlet for it. And I'm not interested in somebody who is just sort of like mildly interested in possibly being a writer as a career path. I want somebody who is, is, is demonstrably into it. And, and so, you know, again, having that website, you can point to and say, I did that. Or when I was in school, I did this whole thing. Those, those help a lot. If you're an editor who's looking for prospective writers, because you get a lot of people who'll be like, yeah, I could write some stuff. And you have no (laughs) way, you have no way to gauge their level of interest and commitment. Are they going to flake out on you? And, and do they really care about this stuff? If you can say, I'm super into Apple stuff. And I wrote, you know, 
reviews of 30 different apps on my blog about apps that I have over here and I want to write app reviews for you, I'm going to I'm going to say, "Wow, okay, we should give this guy a shot." You know? Mm-hmm. And then and then, you know, maybe the reviews are terrible and we don't use you or maybe they're good and we we have some notes and you get better and maybe they're great and we again, beginning of a beautiful friendship. But de- mm-hmm. demonstrating that you care and having examples of what you're what you want to do is uh, the best start. Okay, cool. I'm really glad you brought up passion because uh, I did an episode of, of the show, uh, episode 10, called Passion Over Academic Proof that was, in engineering, it's the same kind of thing. I, I want to hire people to work for me that, you know, maybe they don't go home and program a PLC or their SCADA system at home to control their house or something. Maybe they don't do that. Although I actually had one guy work for me that did do that, which is kind of crazy to me, but still I want the people that are, that are keen, that are, that, that, that love what, what we, what, what they're doing more. So, and I'll weight that more, more heavily than the marks they got when they went through university. So uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up is that passion is a big thing. So, you can detect when somebody doesn't have passion. You can you can yes. you can tell passion. You don't have to have it, but boy, it makes a huge difference if somebody's got a passion for, you know, again, in this business, a passion for technology, a passion for 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 writing and or mm-hmm. making videos or whatever it is. That that is what separates the um the the good the good from the great. I would say certainly in some a lot of times the mediocre from the good. Yeah. No, fair fair comment. So I think we should uh, we should probably wrap it up there. We've gone a bit longer than I normally like to, um, but that's okay. Uh, it's been we've been on a roll, so that's okay. Yeah. Um, so if you would would like to talk more about this, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi and uh, check out my writing at techdistortion.com since we've been talking about writing. Uh, if you'd like to send any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, and that's where you'll also find the show notes for this episode under podcasts Pragmatic. You can follow Pragmatic Show on Twitter to see show announcement show announcements and other related materials. Uh, I'd also really like to thank my guest host today, Jason Snell. And Jason, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Uh, best way is probably Twitter, J Snell on Twitter, J-S-N-E-L-L. And you can uh, also find me at Macworld.com and all of my many podcasts at TheIncomparable.com. Fantastic. I'd also like to personally thank LifeX for sponsoring the show. If you're looking for a great LED bulb that's energy efficient, remotely controllable, colorful, and just plain fun to use, remember specifically visit this URL, LifeX, that's spelled L-I-F-X dot co slash pragmatic and use the coupon code pragmatic for 15% off the total price of your order. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Jason. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.